Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have with us Dr. Eric Greenberg. And Curtis is not joining us from Texas today. Uh, so I'm flying solo. And I'm in my state of frozen California. I think it got down to 47 degrees last night where I am. You're in California as well, right, Dr. Greenberg? Yes, sir, I am. Um, <clears throat> Los Angeles, not too far away from the beach. Ooh. Not that this is beachfront property, but, you know, we we, <laughs> we can drive there from here, I guess. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I can drive to the beach from where I'm at, too. But I think I, you mean something different than I mean from that. I'm about 30 minutes from the beach. Uh, How long do I'm you think it would take you? 10 to 15 minutes. It's, it's maybe about... Uh, three four miles i suppose maybe do you want to say the city that you're in the neighborhood or whatever yeah sure sure so i'm in westchester uh oh. I, I jokingly say this is the west coast westchester as opposed to the the westchester county in new york that many people think of when they first hear about westchester mm. <laughs> we do pick up a little bit of an accent there uh we'll get to that yeah. but yes that's a good distinction between westchester la and westchester New York. I've never been to Westchester, New York. I've been to New York City, but I've never mm -hmm. been to the swanky areas outside of New York <laughs> City. Uh, and I've been to Westchester, L.A. quite a few times, <laughs> which leads me to my, um, my warm anecdote. My, my warm anecdote with Eric is I don't remember the year. It was some years ago now. Um, gosh, I really wish I remembered the year, but I, oh, I'm totally I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I do believe that it was the fall of 2013, I believe. Really? <clears throat> I'm pretty okay. sure of that. Yeah. And we can, you know, we can discuss that later on all the details about how I think I know that, but I believe fall of 2013. <clears throat> I, I will go with your judgment, but it was the fall of 2013. We'll go with that. Um, <laughs> where. You came into my office at Loyola Marymount University, and you taught there. You taught in the, the neighboring department of theology. I was in philosophy. And you tried to get me to join a union and for part-time faculty. And I had been there for close to a decade at that point. Um, I was a seasoned part-timer. I guess they would say. Um, and I, 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 I expressed to you that um, I think I said, I'm a Republican. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I will never forget this. You brought your wallet out. And I double checked just so you know. So I'm not like, you know. I double checked with Eric before I used this anecdote, but I, you got your wallet out and you showed me what looked to be a very old NRA card and a membership card. And it looked real and legit. I don't know why a union organizer, uh, labor issues person on, on campus, in Los Angeles would have one of those cards in his wallet ready to deploy unless it was a real legitimate card. And, 
And I was like, so surprised. And then we ended up talking about the second amendment issues. Turned out you're a fan <laughs> and, um, um, we're both fans of the second amendment, even though we might be disappointed in the NRA from time to time, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but the, just the, the idea of the right to keep and bear arms. So, so that was a point of connection that we had, uh, that individual right to self-defense, the firearm. And that was uh, really cool. And it turned out, um, I, I met Eric, the person in that meeting. And, uh, I also really appreciated how, although we were on other sides of the fence politically on many issues, probably, uh, I appreciated your practical approach to, to this topic of labor on campus, uh, was very nimble in that moment. Um, you, you looked for a point of connection and, um, you did it without hardly thinking like it was second nature. Like that's what you do. This is politics. You, you have to find some kind of point of common ground to have a discussion. And so I really appreciate it. It stuck with me the whole time, um, thinking about how I think that's probably really important in the, in the current moment. And so Dr. Eric Greenberg, (laughs) (laughs) welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mather, Dr. Lucas Mather. Um, and I, I don't know how, how formal you want to be on the show, but I, I don't mind if you call me Eric for the rest of the show, if, if I can call you uh, Lucas or. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah I love, I, I love that anecdote and I, I appreciate your bringing that one up. And, and uh, I'm all about memory and, and, and remembering uh, how people have met and how they've connected. And so I'm glad that you shared a few of the details of that discussion uh, that maybe I had forgotten. I think you and I may have met at some point before that, but we never really discussed things yes. extensively until that time. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. I knew who you were. Yeah. Um, I, uh, are, are you at home in your office? Are you at the yes. school? I am at home right now. Okay. So, uh, so assuming that there are no wiretaps in the home, we're, we're safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I knew who you were on campus. I, I mean, Loyola Marymount is, I, I mean, I enjoyed teaching there for the most part. There were some things that really got under my hide. Um, it's a nice campus. Uh, we could start there. Um, yeah. it's physically a nice space. Uh, mm-hmm. we were in the Howard Hughes building, the, mm-hmm the university hall building, which, um, is, I guess I was quite striking to me the first time I went there, it was, I I found it to be uh, striking. I, I, it didn't match with what I thought a Jesuit university would look like. I thought it would be like Spanish style, but it was, uh, instead like this Howard Hughes type of a building. And, and then the way it is, is that on the third floor of this um, Howard Hughes type of modern office building kind of with an open atrium in the middle. Um, 
it's got this open concept where the hallways uh, run alongside parallel to each other on 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 the building and you can look out onto an atrium that that is uh at the top of the fourth floor it's four stories down and it's it's got this interesting feel and the theology department is right next to the philosophy department we share a coffee place and a a kitchen so because of that the way it's organized um uh, philosophy people bump into theology people all the time and archaeology i guess there's an archaeology component there yeah. as well and, and we're walking the classics yes yeah um, as well yeah so uh it's not uncommon to bump into someone who is going to teach greek um uh, or metaphysics or um you know intro to new testament or something like that and another person is working on a course in ethics or epistemology or some kind of philosophical figure and that was just normal and there's couches and stuff and students are out there and sometimes professors are talking to students but um now how long have you been at loyola marymount are you still there yes so um I am still there, and I actually have a new position. So on, on some level, I guess you could say I'm a, <clears throat> a, a success story, especially among the ranks of adjuncts who are beaten and abused, uh, many of us, most of us. But, uh, but at this point, I do have a full-time non-tenure track position there. It is a, a, a relatively new position. It was, it was created by the university uh, very recently as part of their larger uh, plan to to engage with interreligious dialogue. And so this position, it's the clinical assistant professor in interreligious dialogue. Um, so it's most definitely a step up from the part-time position that I had for many, many years. So I was, um, I was hired there originally in 2003 as a part-timer to teach New Testament. I still, <clears throat> I, was, I was ABD at the time, which in case your viewers don't know, is all but dissertation. So it's the phase of a doctoral candidate's life, their, their, um, the, the, the life cycle of your academic program, getting your PhD where you've already finished your coursework and your big qualifying exams and you're just writing your dissertation. So that's where I was in my program <clears throat> in 2003. I was ABD, as they say. Um, and um, somebody that I knew Um, who had connections at LMU, had put me in touch with the chair of the theology department at the time, who um, they needed somebody to teach New Testament. And uh, they hired me very quickly, but as a part-timer, so to teach one course. So I taught one course in the spring of 2003, from January to May. um, And they liked me enough, uh, the students and faculty liked me enough, that they hired me again for the fall of 2003, the 03-04 academic year for a full-time non-tenure track visiting position. So visiting, once again, for your viewers, if they don't know, is generally the term that they give to somebody who is there. You're not on the tenure track. There is no indication that you're going to be hired on permanently, but it is full-time. So you're teaching a full-time course load and you're there at that school for usually it's a one-year appointment. Um, I've often kind of bristled at the term 
visiting because in the old days, in the old, old days when professors actually made money and they were respected, usually you were visiting from somewhere else. All right. It wasn't just that, oh, well, I'm, I'm visiting from my little shack <laughs> in <laughs> Westchester and I have a one year job. Please, sir, can I have some more? Forgive me for the, for, you know, for the, uh, the right. The, the, the impressions there, but uh, in the old days you were visiting from somewhere else, but that's the term that academia has come to use in the last few decades for these non-tenure track short-term appointments that are at least full-time for right now. But <clears throat> you're just visiting the school. We're testing you out. There was, nobody ever said to me, oh, you'll have a foot in the door and and, uh, you know, if you're if you play your cards right, you could get a tenure track position. No one ever said that. In fact, a few people said exactly the opposite. They said, don't get your hopes up. It's never happened here. It doesn't happen. It's not part of the institutional culture. Just know that going into this. Um, and of course, maybe I was a little bit naive and I thought, no, I'll, I'll woo them. I'll show them that I can do the work. I'm a workhorse. I'll I'll treat their students right. I'll play the game finish my dissertation and I'll get that full-time tenure track job there one day. Um, and it never happened, but, um, but I did get hired for a second term as a visiting professor. So that was the 0405 season. So two full years in a row, 0304, 0405. Um, and during that time period, they were interviewing for a full-time tenure track professor in new Testament. Um, and I applied for that. And actually, if I recall correctly, two years in a row, they interviewed. Um, the first year, they didn't find anyone like they liked. Um, I think I may have been a semifinalist at the time, but they just, they put the position, they put the search off for another year. And then that was in 0405. They interviewed yet again. I applied. I don't even think I got a semifinalist uh, spot at that point. Um, and then they did finally hire an old friend of mine from grad school, a wonderful guy, um, who is now, unfortunately, he is deceased, but, you know, he, he was hired and he served that school for many years and was well What was well his loved. name? Uh, that was David Sanchez. I don't know if you knew him oh. at all. Yeah, he passed I away. I did know him. Yeah. He passed Revelation? away about... I'm sorry? He was a specialist in Revelation, I think. Oh, was Apoc he? I didn't realize Apocalypse. that. I... Okay, maybe, yeah. maybe. But he was a New Testament scholar. We spent time together at Claremont in our master's programs before he then went to, I think, Union Theological Seminary for his PhD. So we knew each other years and years ago. I, when I even did he, rented. When did he die? Um, I don't have the exact date in my head, but I would say in the last three to four years, probably four okay. years. It's, it it's got to be the same guy I'm thinking of. It has to oh, be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we talked. Um, yeah, wonderful human being. And, uh, you know, I mean, in retrospect, I'm, I'm glad he had that position. I'm glad he got that. He was the right man for the job. But of course, it was a disappointment for me because, you know, I, had, I put my heart and soul. I had studied in my New Testament program uh, by that point, um, 12 years, 12 years in grad school, right? To um, two years of my first master's degree and then 10 years of the MAPHD program. Uh, at Claremont, where I know you also got your degree. We, we have a lot of uh, shared background here. But yeah, I spent 12 years at, at Claremont getting multiple um, <clears throat> advanced academic degrees. I felt like I put in my, 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 uh, my, my time, I paid my dues, so to speak. And then here I am, I, I finally got my PhD in 05 at the moment that my position at LMU ended. So as, as they hired David to, to uh, take the new 
um, tenure track position. That was when they ended the visiting position because they don't know they don't need a, a, a visiting position any longer. That's you know, it's like why do they need this guy to teach? So, and there yeah. was also a, a legal aspect to it, as far as I understand, where um, if a if a professor is teaching for a certain period of time at a school full time, they may legally have a claim to tenure in terms of, uh, you know, you might sue the school and say, well, I've been here X amount of time, you owe me this. So in order to avoid that, they will frequently, they will um, uh, generally, they will end a position after its second full-time year so that you don't have a potential claim toward tenure in your third year. So they, when that, when that visiting position ended in its second year, they had a brand new tenure track professor. I was then you know, sent somewhat, somewhat unceremoniously out into the world. I had just gotten married, just got my PhD. And, and when I came back from my honeymoon, just basically my, the, the office computer was wiped. All of my personal information was gone. It was just, there was never even uh, an exit interview in terms of telling you how to retrieve your email as you leave or where to deposit the library books as you are no longer employed by the school, what to do. It was just sort of thanks, goodbye. Um, and so I was out on my butt for another, I'd say two or three years <clears throat> from 05 to 08, <clears throat> working at a variety of different schools around L LA, uh, mostly startup schools. Sorry. Where did you work um, during I, that time? Yeah, I, I worked for a small a Korean-funded university called Shepherd University, which is now defunct. Um, they, they got their accreditation. They were going in the right direction, but I think there was some embezzlement involved from their board or something, and so they are now defunct. But I worked there for about two or three years as a <clears throat> professor of New Testament. Um, I also worked at a startup uh, from, some, from some other people that I had contact with in the Korean-American community. It's a lot of Korean Christians living in the L.A. area, uh, many of whom are trying to start small startup schools, particularly Christian colleges. So I've been working with some of those uh, mm -hmm. communities over the years. Um, I worked as, uh, I think it might have been dean of students or something like that for... Um, Horizon Theological Institute. I helped to found that. That also is now defunct. I then worked for um, um, Green International College or Green International University as some type of low-level administrator in helping to found that. It was a university focused mainly on uh, promoting green energy, green technology, that kind of uh, research. They went defunct after about two years or so. So there's a lot of these little startup schools that just never really make it. And they're employing people who otherwise just don't have jobs. These are the people with PhDs that aren't getting jobs at bigger, more established universities. And there's a lot of them. Uh, those are the adjuncts that we're talking about. And um, so I was in that community for the next three or so years um, before LMU reached out to me again in 08 and said, hey, are you still available to teach New Testament? We need somebody to teach a couple of courses. Did and you get an email? Did you get a call? What, what was it? I'm pretty sure it was an email. I think I saved it. And at the time, there was a part of me that just wanted to, to write back and, and say something foul and vulgar and tell them what to do with that, with that job. But I didn't, uh, partly because I'm a gentleman, um, partly because I'm forgiving, and partly because I needed the money. I needed the job. <laughs> so, so I wrote back and said, yes, I'm available. 
and um, and that be, began, or I guess you'd say resumed our our long and fruitful relationship. And I'm glad I did because they <clears throat> they hired me for two classes, and I have taught at least two classes uh, there every semester since that time, since 08, since fall of 2008. Um, and that was that was the beginning of my long period of being an adjunct or part-time professor at Loyola Marymount, which only changed in the last year or so with this new position. So you could say I, I, I've been teaching for the better part of, of almost 20 years. I've been at Loyola Marymount for most of those 20 years. And I was an adjunct or part-time professor um, for most of that time, only until the last year where I've been uh, full-time non-tenure track. So I hope that answers your, your question. Um, I could go way more in depth if you want. <laughs> it definitely helps prepare the, the uh, soil, I think, for mm-hmm. some of what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, helpful to maybe uh, clarify a little bit about what 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 this means i mean so um first of all that's a hell of a way to make a living (laughs) and Mm -hmm. i and i know firsthand uh similar experience on my end making a living as an adjunct um it's um now like what i find is that people a lot of folks don't understand what it, what does it mean? What realistically, what does it mean to teach two courses? How much money do you make? Um, you know, so mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to kind of provide some of those details to get a sense yeah. for what is it we're really talking about here. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also like how much work is that? How, uh, how does that compare to a full-time job teaching college mm-hmm. so um i i happen to know loyola marymount pretty well because mm-hmm. i'm a graduate of the of of it and also i i taught there for over a decade mm. um i know that teaching two courses is the max that you'll teach as a part-time faculty mm-hmm. in the ordinary case and by part-time faculty, we really mean um, someone who sometimes might teach one class, but ordinarily it would mean you're paid. I'm, I'm thinking back to 08. Um, do you want to share yeah, those numbers? Fine, we yeah. didn't really discuss this, the number thing, that's but fine. I think maybe to give a sense for what in Los Angeles, what is it that you're making and how you're, how are you making it? Yeah, I have a a general remembrance of what the numbers were at that time. And if I recall correctly in 08 to maybe 2013 per course, Loyola Marymount paid approximately $4,500 per course to a part-timer. If I recall correctly, was that around what you remember as well? You know, I should have looked at the numbers before I did this interview, uh, not knowing that I was going to ask this question because I'm such a rookie right now. But it's okay. You know, it, it it's believable. Uh, it, yeah. That sounds that sounds about right. Um, yeah, a- approaching five thousand. Approaching five thousand. And, and I I will add that that was pretty good 
in my yes. experience. <laughs> um, it was some of the best in the LA area. Yes. Now, yes. Every region so. has its own pay scales. And so maybe in other regions where the cost of living is less, you might see lower salaries for adjunct professors in those regions. But in LA, where it's expensive to live, yeah, $4,500 to $5,000 was pretty much the best you could. Well, yes, I, I, I'll just tell you. At that time, there were other schools where the adjunct taking 2500 That's right. That's right. When I first started teaching, yeah. um, I, you know, I really should have double checked the numbers here, but uh, I do believe this is true. <laughs> Mm-hmm. My first semester teaching at Biola University in the fall of 2005 was mm-hmm. $2,400 yeah. for one yeah. class. Yeah. Now, what's full time typically? In terms of number or, of classes, you mean? Yeah. So people yeah. get a uh, sense. So at most universities, a full time professor will not teach more than three classes total. At some universities, it is two classes. Two classes is full time, but you're also expected to do committee work and service and research and publication, whereas that is not required usually of adjunct professors. You're only paid to teach, you're not paid to do all the other stuff. You're expected to do it if you ever want to get anywhere in your career, yeah. but nobody's paying you to do it. They that. ask you about it. Yes, they do. They do ask mm-hmm. you about it. What kind of publications are you doing? <laughs> and it's a little it's a little bit uh, odd to get that question when it's not part of your job. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, why are you asking me about this? Mm-hmm. Is this subtle hint that I should be doing this on top of? Yes. Okay, let's do the math for people. Because because some people are like, okay, wait, you said 2,400, he said 4,500, just break it down for me. Yeah. Two classes, that's $9,000 a semester. That's 18,000 for the whole year, unless you teach in the summer, which the full-timers want those classes typically Mm -hmm. at Loyola. At, At other schools, it's different. This gets very complicated very quickly because the numbers are so different. Mm-hmm. But at, uh, for example, Moorpark College, where I started in fall of 2005. And by the way, feel free to look at a map of Southern California. Look at Biola there in La Mirada, which is in Southeast LA County. It's the Florida of LA County. So, <laughs> you know, Southeast. Then Moorpark is like in the Northwest Territories of Canada. It's not even this, it's not even in LA County. It's like, if LA County is America and then Ventura County is Canada, I'm in the Northwest territory. Well, not exactly, but kind of you I'm in Canada, basically. Lower Park college, I believe was $2,500 per class mm. when I started. So I made $5,000, a little bit less than $5,000 for teaching two classes. Yeah. Now that, um, uh, that was when George W. Bush was in office, and that was when you could fill up a, a, a tank of gas for, um, I, I didn't even think about it. it I didn't mm. even notice the gas. So right now, I could not afford to do that because the gas alone would, you couldn't do it. I just right. couldn't do it. So back, back then, it didn't even, it didn't even um, register the gas issue. So that, that'll, that'll give you some sense for what what we're talking about as far as 2008 goes yeah, um, or 2005, I guess, but now I guess 2008 was still George Bush time. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. So 
Now you're making, you're teaching two classes. Which classes were you teaching at Loyola? At the time, I was almost always teaching Introduction to New Testament. Is that the course that you've taught the most, do you think, from there? Out there? Um, it has changed, um, oh, but I've, okay. I've taught that for, I would say, at least a decade. I taught Introduction to New Testament. Uh, since that time, they've kind of, or my, my career has kind of shifted more into uh, teaching world religions. So I've taught world religions most frequently over the last 10 years. So first 10 years was always New Testament, the most recent. 10 years has been mostly world religions. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool course. Um, sounds like a cool course to teach. Mm -hmm. did, so did, now did you uh, enjoy teaching that class? The new Testament or. Yeah. yeah well, let's stay in 2008. Sure. I'm, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm mellowing in 2008, right. When you came sure. back. <laughs> so, yeah, I love yeah. teaching new Testament and, and, and I wish I could teach it more often. It's just that the school seems to need me to teach world religions more. That's, that's kind of where I'm fitting into the larger um, plan of the department is, ex is, is expanding into interreligious dialogue. Um, and that's, that's fine. That's fine. I, I hope to continue to teach new Testament one day because I teach it in a larger context of world religions. Um, but, but yeah, I loved it. I, and I was good at it. Students liked me. When, by the way, I'll just mention this, when my position ended in 05, the, the last of the visiting full-time positions that I had, there were two independent petitions going around among students to have me kept on. And, and, I, and I found out it was not the same petition. It was different petitions from different students. And when the, uh, when the chair of the department at the time, and I won't mention the person's name because I don't want to disparage them, uh, when they... Um, uh, caught wind of this, they came to my office and sat down with me and asked me to be more sportsmanlike about it, to be more um, compliant with the department and let to let the students know that this is not okay and that these things happen where professors come and go um, and to just let the students, just let them know that I was okay with moving on. And I was not okay with moving on, but I, I did was I, what I was told, and I certainly didn't encourage them to continue to send around these petitions. But it, I, I guess it caused trouble for, for the leadership of the department at the time, and they considered me maybe a little bit of a, of a rabble-rouser, because um, I had some level of popularity. Okay, so that was 2000. That was 05. Oh, that was 05. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, this is before they brought me back as a I that's why I was surprised. I was thinking, you actually want me back as a part-timer if, if I was that much of a, a thorn in your side? So then in 08, yeah, they brought me back. I taught two classes pretty much every semester from that point onward. One time I even taught three classes, um, which is technically, technically could be considered full-time, even though they don't classify you as a full-time employee. It is at least full-time hours at LMU. Um, if you full-time professors will either teach no more than two classes and have the additional committee work and service work they do, or some classes of professors, non-tenure track professors will teach three classes, but there's less of an expectation of committee work. And that's currently what I'm in right now. The, the clinical position has an expectation of three classes, but less committee work and less expectation of publication. It's more of a, a an instructionally focused um, uh, job position. And I'm okay with that. So I'm currently full-time teaching three classes. So okay. part-time one Sounds could say good. is two-thirds time. Yeah. If you teach two classes, it's two-thirds time. Let's go back. Let's go back. Yeah. 
to 2008 when you were rehired as an adjunct. Mm -hmm. And they said, you, we want you to come in and teach these intro to new Testament. Was that right? Yeah. I believe it was two sections of intro to new Testament. Now, what would you say without committee work and without the administrative stuff that full-time faculty engage in as a matter of their departmental collegiality and duty to the school, just if you're just teaching, okay, what, how many classes do you think that would be for full-time work? Um, for, for full-time work, how, how many classes? Yeah. Um, I think three classes is a reasonable estimate and that's, and that's why I was mentioning the current position, which is considered full-time and is only focused or primarily focused on teaching and they have me teaching three classes. So that, that's pretty much the expectation okay. across the board. Yeah. All right. You know, yeah. and I'm, I don't mean if you're, I don't mean you're publishing or doing anything mm-hmm. else. I just mean, you're just mm-hmm. teaching, you're meeting with students, you're preparing your lecture. Um, so you're saying three classes is pretty much, that's a full-time job right there. Yeah. With the, with the current, level of expectation, the current level of units that are expected of a professor at LMU. Other schools, it may be different. They may consider it four classes being full-time, but in those cases, those might be three-unit classes where there's there are less, uh, fewer uh, in-class teaching hours. But yeah. I would say between three and four classes is full-time no matter where you go. Okay. It, it's between three and four classes. The reason I ask is because at the community college, mm-hmm. it's a little, it might be a little challenging for people to follow this, mm. but, but at the community college, it's five classes. Oh, interesting. Is full-time. Mm. Um, and they do still do committee work and stuff like that. So mm. um, now that's, those are five classes with three units. So mm-hmm. three times five is 15 units. Right. Loyola Marymount's courses are semester, four semester units, right? Currently four semester Cur- units. Currently. Yeah. yeah. So it, it formerly um, was three and it changed. It was right formerly three and it changed. Yes, that's right. I was there when it yeah. changed. Yeah. Um, so three times four would be 12. That would be, f- so f- I think a clinical professor I've seen clinical professors teach four classes before. I don't know if they were teaching an overload or if that was just part of their mm. package. But at um, that time, that sounds right because actually, yeah, when three, I was for three first, unit classes, yeah, because yeah, okay. when I was when I was um, visiting professor at LMU and from 03 to 05, I taught four classes. Yeah, and okay, they were three, that, three unit uh, classes. Yeah. There you go. Okay, that's yeah. where I got that from. Yep. Yeah. Because we had clinical professors in the philosophy department and I notice mm. I would count the classes they're teaching, and, mm-hmm. you know, so, okay. So, um, now your prep time for these two courses, when you went back to Loyola Marymount would have been, would you, would you say substantial or would it, would it have been, you have a PhD in new Testament, but it does take some uh, work to figure out what a textbook you're going to use, 
you know, you have to connect the material down to their level. It's when you get a PhD, you learn how to take apart the uh, uh, space shuttle, <laughs> and then you're then you you're teaching undergraduates, and it's like you have a box of Legos. Depending on their preparation at the community college, it could be you have it's more like Lincoln logs or something right. like that. So what's a you know walk us through what it's like to prepare for a class after being away from it for a while. Yeah. Um, this differs for every professor, of course, but the more experienced you are, probably there will be less uh, prep time involved. Uh, but in st even, even still, there's always a few hours of prep time uh, every week. Um, Sorry, things are popping up on my screen here. And if you don't mind, I think I'm going to restart my my video on my camera just for clarity, if you don't mind here a second. No problem. Okay. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, there we oh, go. Oh, who is that clearer. dashing young lad? <laughs> <laughs> that was me on the day of my wedding in 2005. I, I had curly hair. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. But um, the... Um, just, I just, just, I just realized we, we didn't tell, we didn't say where you're from. Where are you oh, from? Oh, yeah. I'm a I'm a New Yorker by birth. I'm from Long Island. No, and, uh, yes, no. Absolutely. get out of here. Are you <laughs> what with that accent? Forget about it. Well, my mom I was going to say you were from that, Australia or something. <laughs> my mom thought that it was a a very low class accent that we had, and she tried to train it out of me. So I think uh, uh, people that I grew up with would have a much heavier accent, but mine rears its ugly head from time to time. My wife says that when I get tired or I'm around other New Yorkers, she can hear it come out. The can, you, can, you give us a, can you give us a taste of it to see what it's like? I love it. I love oh, the New York gosh, it's, That's hard. I, I mean, I could, I could do a, could do Long an imitation of, of my, uh, my, my, my father's aunt. This was my great aunt, Sarah, who um, she would talk about, we would sit there in her kitchen. She'd say, Richard, they don't visit me no more, you know, and she could talk like that, talking about the buying coffee in the morning in the office and, you know, Tardy Tardy and Tardy Avenue, that kind of thing. I mean, it's very, very thick. No, I don't think any of my friends talked like that when I was growing up. That's very Brooklyn. That's very Brooklyn and, and, and even parts of Queens. But I lived out on the island where it was just a bit more subtle. And um, but, yeah, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a. The Bugs Bunny accent, you know, that's very much Corona Queens. And my grandfather had that. He always he always talked about uh, uh, hamburgers and uh, and coffee and, and that kind of thing. Just very kind of a rough and tumble, very macho kind of accent that that I grew up around. You know? <laughs> so you uh, you can understand Anna Harris then when you talk to her because she's from Brooklyn. <laughs> I adore her. The first time I ever met her. I, I thought this woman is from home. She's a little piece of home. And, and yeah. I just, she's another, she's yeah. another professor in the theology department there. Yeah. Full-time professor. Yeah. Yes. And a very strong advocate of, of adjuncts and our, uh, our place in academia and our, our importance and on our yeah. rights as human beings as well. Yeah. I can't argue with that. Yeah. She, uh, yeah, she never, yeah. she didn't like my political views at all, but mm. she, seemed to like me for some reason yeah. i don't know why but you know she always just liked me but i never got well, the sense she, that she was looking she can down see at the me. person that that's that's what she's about she can see the person and, and i think yeah. maybe that's part of the new york attitude is that even if we're on different sides of the political spectrum 
we're all people and we'll all give each other the yeah. shirts off of our back. And that's, mm. I think that's what she grew up with okay. in that kind of an environment. So, um, yeah. But in terms so, of hours, since you're asking yeah. about the number of hours of prep, um, you know, I'll give just a little bit of a, a, a for, for a frame of reference. Uh, in the last several years in the state of California, um, the, the state government has gotten involved in terms of um, certain types of contractor jobs and, and uh, adjunct professors have fallen into that category of contractors. And so in order to ensure that we are not being subjected to wage theft so that, that certain levels of labor are being expected of us that we're not getting paid for, such as um, you know, prep time for classes or making up syllabi or things that you do before the class even starts that you're not getting paid for. In order to ensure that wage theft is not going on, there was certain levels of legislation that were passed so that um, that the universities were responsible to pay us a certain amount per hour, a minimum per hour. So, so, and I think it was maybe about 2018 or thereabouts throughout the state, part-time professors were required to start submitting timesheets to their university for the number of hours that they worked so that we could ensure we were getting paid. And the reason I mention this is because there was a standard number of hours that were assumed for each course. And, and we'd put that onto the, the timesheet. And I remember it was, if I'm correct, it was about 17 or 18 hours per course is what was assumed and what was submitted on our timesheet. So if that gives you a per, general you mean per week, no, mean? uh, well, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Per, per, per course per week. So about 17 hours per course per week. So if you're teaching two courses, over the course of a week, there you've got about 34 to 35 hours per week. So it is nearly a full-time job to have those two classes. So that includes not only the in-class instructional time, which is usually about three hours per week um, per class, three hours per week per class, but also the prep time, the student advising time, the grading time and all that kind of stuff. It all, it all adds up. So I might spend right. several hours outside of class per week for each class doing grading prep etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's not only the the three the hours students, per, yeah. per week in class but also the other maybe another yeah maybe at least another three or four hours per week per class on top of that so it all adds up you know you're you're you know, you're, you're, you're basically got almost 20 hours per week per class when it all adds up <clears throat> so if you if you're teaching three courses on that way of calculating the hours how many hours a week would that be then that would be more than full time but i i will say in fairness the the math i guess you'd say the math kind of combines here where you're not going to be doing the same work twice because you'll likely be teaching two sections of the same class so you're only going to be prepping once for those two sections of that same class. So a person who's teaching three classes, it's probably two preps, you know, two sections of one prep, one section of the other prep. So it's not, it is not linear in that respect. So right, still you're right, going to be right. winding up working about 40 or so hours per week for three classes, uh, including grading, meeting with students, prep time, research, et cetera. Yeah. It is a full-time job and it can yeah. be even more 
if you are trying to get ahead in your life and you are doing research and publication as is expected, even though it's not written into the job description for adjunct professors or most of the contingent professor positions. That's another term that I know your, your listeners might want to know about. Contingent is just a general catch-all category for part-timers, as well as full-time non-tenure track people, whether it's clinical positions or uh, visiting positions or instructor or whatever, just anybody who is not on the tenure line, they generally call them contingent faculty, uh, even if they're full-time. So, um, what, what are the tenures doing? How, how much do they work and how much do they get paid? And what, what's the difference between yeah. what you're making and what they're making? And um, yeah. do they work harder? Uh, what, do they work more but, hours? That's a good question. I mean, different people will make different claims, and I want to be as honest as, as possible and, and supportive as possible. These people work hard. They work very hard. Uh, academia is a, an abusive profession. It expects a lot out of you. It's a very charitably oriented profession. I mean, it, it works well with the servant's heart of Christianity that reviewers know about, the servant's heart. You're expected to, to dig deep and, and give a lot and to work a lot of hours for nothing, your publication will be for nothing. Most people don't get paid for what they publish in academic journals. And that's a lot of work every year if you're expected to publish at least one or a couple of journal articles every year. And it's for nothing. You don't get paid. It's part of what you're paid for as a tenure track professor. Yeah, you'll maybe get paid a little something for a book, but people don't publish books that frequently, maybe one every 10 years. Some people have never published a book. And, and you, don't get, you, get, you don't get that much. I mean, you get no, no. A, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup of coffee or something like that. <laughs> yeah, my 2009 book. I think I've made about three hundred dollars from it. So you might be able to get a coffee maker. Okay. Yeah, coffee maker. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, these ten. A nice coffee maker, but. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. they work hard. They work very hard, and. Um, but they do get paid fairly well for it. It depends on the university, but I, I believe that at Loyola Marymount, they get paid pretty well. Uh, the salaries differ depending upon your rank, whether you're an entry-level um, uh, assistant professor or mid-career associate professor, or if you're full professor, whether you have tenure yet or whether you, whether you haven't gotten it yet. And we could talk later about the tenure process, um, but, but all those things will, 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 translate into a differential of pay. But my understanding right now is the base pay of um, an entry-level assistant professor, an assistant um, non- That's or rather, the lowest level. Yeah, lowest level. So a tenure-track professor. They haven't it's had like tenure a, yet. But it's they're like an gonna ensign get in the Navy. You know, okay, <laughs> yeah. Butter bars. Might, yeah that they might be making somewhere in the 80,000 range at this point, but there's a lot of other perks that go on top of that. There are certain such as what housing assistance. There are certain grants they're eligible for. So hypothetically, hypothetically at Loyola, at Loyola. Yeah. At Loyola, yeah, yeah. It differs. Not, not at Marpart college, not at, <laughs> not at Biola, right, <laughs> not right. at Pepperdine. Although yeah. you can live on campus in Pepperdine, but sure. But I know of one entry level, Professor at LMU, uh, 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 a, a tenure track, but non-tenured tenure track, assistant professor who's been there maybe about two years, who with certain 
levels of assistance, grants, et cetera, et cetera, is probably making about 95 right now, if I recall. That's a pretty good salary. I mean, uh, LA, LA is expensive, but that's still a pretty good salary. And I know I'm not making that much. What I'm are they doing on the, what are they doing in the summer? Uh, they, and this is without teaching during summers. So, so uh, professors right. generally will have off during summers. So that's June, July, and August. Um, usually they're expected to research and publish. So that's where I was saying that the Grades fields are, are due at the end of May. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're expected to work all the time. You're, you're always thinking, you're always researching, you're always uh, reading, you should always be publishing. That's part of the mindset of the field. And most of us undertake this willingly because we love it. We love the field. We love what we do. We want to educate students. We want to make the world better for, for those who are Christian. They want to spread the word of God as part of their, their academic work. That's why I keep talking about that servant's heart. Professors have a servant's heart, so they're working. They're not, they're not, they don't have it easy, but the tenure line professors, they are generally paid significantly better than adjunct professors. And do I think that tenure line professors work harder than adjunct professors? No, I do not believe so. They, I think they're still working the same amount of, of energy in terms of, 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 you know, ergs or, or, or kilojoules or megajoules of energy expended by the body. They're working the same amount per unit time, per hour, per day. Um, but they have different responsibilities than adjunct professors. You know, they're teaching maybe more courses or in addition to the two courses, they have more committee work and so forth, but they have to hire somebody if, over the summer. They've got to figure out who to hire and they sift mm -hmm. through 400 applications, maybe mm -hmm. actually they're probably not that many, but like 40, maybe. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. They're, they're doing other work. So what is the adjunct professor doing, doing during the summer, either starving because they don't get paid for the, the, the months they're not working or they're working at another school or another job, something. Now, when you say starving, you mean, do you <laughs> mean you don't, you're not eating much, you can't afford groceries or what do you mean by that? Yeah, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but in some cases it can be that bad. When I say starving, I mean, if you're not working, you're not getting paid. So an adjunct professor is being paid you're for living, the living semester that they, uh, yeah, they're living on savings. You're not getting paid for You're not paying your credit card or something. Uh, yeah, no, nobody, yeah, nobody's paying anything yeah. for you. You're, you're living on a credit card, or you're living on savings or whatever. Um, salary is not calculated based on a 12 month period. Right. Whereas generally the, for the tenure line professors, it is calculated on a year basis. Okay. So, so for the adjunct professor, you're and uh, on the numbers you gave me for 2008 and it's increased mm -hmm. you yes. know, since yeah. then. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, back in 2008, there was a crisis uh, in the economy, the housing market crashed and it sent ripple effects across the, the United States. Mm. It was a rough time for a lot of people. But in 2008, um, 2009, 18 grand in LA for a semester is not enough to live for most people. And yeah. uh, unless you own the home and you, your grandparents bought it for like $400 or something and they passed it down to you, Prop 13, yeah. and you're paying very little tax, uh, yeah. property tax on that. Um, 
but most people are not in that situation. Probably. Uh, I don't think you have parents from California, so you wouldn't be in that situation, right? You're from Correct, New York. Yeah. You're from New York. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the property tax law discriminates against you. <laughs> it discriminates <laughs> against anybody who doesn't get basically uh, property from their parents here or mm-hmm. grandparents. Um, you, you would pay much higher property tax buying, buying the home. Um, so you're, uh, you have to save enough during the semester thinking about the summer. So when you think of the summer, the summer isn't like I'm going to be on the beach and sipping my ties and reading the latest uh, things that came out of Cambridge University Press and Oxford and about my discipline, you're, you know, you're thinking, how am I going to pay for eggs? Yeah. How am I going to f- maybe get a half tank of gas enough to get around mm-hmm. until I get that next paycheck? And that next paycheck, you know, when that next paycheck will be if you're invited back for the fall, it's mm-hmm. not going to be at the beginning of August. It's not going to be in the, at the end of August, it's going to be September 15th for Loyola Marymount. Yeah. And if you're, uh, at the community colleges, like I was, I had to think even further ahead. Mm -hmm. I knew it was not going to be in mid September. It was going to be at the end of September. So I had to be ready for that because Mm -hmm. they don't pay you until the end of the September. Um, and for the Cal States, it was weird too. I taught at the Cal States and my, I tell you, man, that's when I about lost it. <laughs> when I, <laughs> when I, when I, I taught for the Cal States for several years, Cal State in Los Angeles. And I got another job at a different Cal State in Orange County, which the cost of living is not that it's not different really Orange County. LA. It's not really, it's still Southern California. Mm-hmm. And I started in a new department. Um, and I had something like 14 years of teaching experience at that point, but way more than that, actually, if you count full-time, I mean, it was, it was, it was like a hundred and 70 some classes I've taught mm-hmm. by that point. and I saw my paycheck at Cal state and they pay once a month and it's a weird pay system at Cal state. It's weird. You like for when you start in the fall, you don't get your last paycheck until the following fall a year later. Wow. Well, okay. So I, I got my paycheck. It was $700 Mm. for one course with 14 years of experience constitutional law. I was teaching constitutional law at Cal state Fullerton. I got and it was a net. Now that's not gross. Well, actually it was gross in a different Mm -hmm. sense, but it was a net of $736 for one month. Right. Now it just happened that I could drive there fairly quickly, hardly any gas I had to pay. uh, but just, I, I was just, I, I didn't even want to 
add up what that was per hour. Yeah. Now they were going to give me six payments of that six warrants. That's how they do it. It's weird Mm. how they do it. But so I was going to get paid through uh, whatever that was. Uh, And they don't pay you right away either. I think I got that pay stub. I don't even remember when it was maybe February for, Mm. for a January start class at the end of February, Mm. early March, March one or something like that. And I, then I would get paid probably, probably through July, but so, but it's like, you know, so it's, um, it is a very difficult thing to figure out how to make a living as an adjunct professor in Los Angeles. I can tell you that from firsthand experience, by the way, that $700 that was in 2018. Oh my goodness. That was not 2008. That was 2018. That's criminal. That's criminal. (laughs) Jerry Brown was, was governor. (laughs) Gavin Newsom would, would win the, the governorship that, that but, Mm. but this is that state that this is California. This is the state of California. Right. Right. And so the reality of this is that a professor, an adjunct professor cannot just take the summer off. Um, adjunct professors. Yes, that's right. Have to, that's where I know, was leading up to. Yeah. 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 We, we have to, and I still say we, because I am, I'm, I'm, I've spent 18 years in that category, even though I'm no longer an adjunct professor, I still have that, that, um, sympathy for that particular demographic, but adjunct professors have to, uh, if you don't have a spouse, even if you do have a spouse who's working, Still, you have to have some other kind of side hustle, other side job. You have to teach at other universities. And this is where the terminology freeway flyer comes into play. And I know on some level you were a freeway flyer where you're working, uh, teaching two classes at this university. As soon as you're done, you get on the road in your car and you fly over the freeways to the other side of town to teach at your other job where you have maybe one or two classes some adjunct professors are teaching five, six, seven, eight classes at two, three, and four different universities. I was very lucky that I was only teaching two to three classes at two different universities most of the time. I, I never taught at more than two universities simultaneously. I was lucky in that respect. But some of them did pay $2,500 per course. Some of the smaller startup universities that I was working at or associated with, while LMU was paying $4,500 per class. Some of these other uh, small universities between 2005 and 2008. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and some of them even continue to pay 2,500. Some of the ones that I was associated with up until recently, I know they were paying adjunct professors $2,500. Cause I, I was the Dean of academics at one of those schools. I was a part-time Dean for eight years at a little startup university. And I helped sign those contracts. And I know those professors were making $2,500 and there was nothing I could do about it. (laughs) Yeah. So you said that uh, you go back to the assistant professor that you referenced without naming the person 95,000 with grants and all that. That's pretty high. I would say it's pretty good for, for LA uh, LMU um, tries to help their professors out. What, how does that compare with what an adjunct makes now? So the salaries at LMU for adjuncts have gone up significantly. Um, and 
I'm not going to say that's due to any benevolence or beneficence of the university. It's just a lot of it has to do with economics and and the change of the curriculum. So one of the things is that we went from a three-unit curriculum to a four-unit curriculum. So therefore, they were paying us 25% more because they were expecting more hours per week and more coursework for each course. So when we went to the four-unit curriculum, the average adjunct salary went into the 6,500 range, as opposed to formerly 4,500. Now it was per like class. Six, per class, per class. So, so to make $65,000 in LA. 6,500, 6,500. Yeah, yeah, but easy number. This is easy. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. To make $65,000 in LA, you'd have uh, to teach 10 of those yes. courses, right? That's right. And There's two semesters. At school. That would be five classes a semester if you're going to work on publishing over the summer mm -hmm. but you can't teach five classes they won't let you right because, because of, then that would be in the because of, la of because of labor laws right right now here's what's going on with the labor laws and this is where we might get into i'm not going to get into any disagreements that we might have i'm just going to identify a possible disagreement and i i honestly don't know enough honestly about where this is a learning experience for me as well so um but it might the way i'm thinking of the labor law is it might be uh well-intentioned but the labor law is is um of course it's going back to the new deal so this is a huge huge discussion there's no way we can we're just scratching the surface but i'm just identifying it is is that the labor law is um the piecemeal labor law that, that's come into play here uh, over the decades is treating some aspects of work as a contract that's already been made really before you can negotiate for work are there some conditions that the state says are already pre-existing mm. so now, when you have that, you have an incentive on the part of the institution to dance around that. Um, and that's why you get some of these wacky results. Um, I saw the time cards at Pepperdine a couple years before they appeared at Loyola Marymount. Mm. And um, the, uh, that probably is um why there was a different result in the two lawsuits there were two lawsuits actually one against pepperdine and one against loyola marymount mm -hmm. uh, loyola got hit way harder than pepperdine yeah. did way harder well it's yeah. because pepperdine had uh, you know i don't know maybe it's because the law school's on the campus and our law the lmu's law school was off campus and they're not talking to each other i don't know but sure. but uh they were uh, they were all over that and pepperdine it was annoying uh putting my time i taught i taught at pepperdine for over a decade until i just couldn't handle i couldn't return emails anymore i just really honestly i was like i just the drive just some of the issues. I love teaching there. It's not, you know, there's, there's problems with every campus. I don't want to, it's not fair. I, I, I don't think to, uh, you know, present the pre present the issue as if it's an evil place, there's problems at every place. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to get 
you know, chip away too much at that. But, but I, at Pepperdine, they were what, one of the things I hated about it was this, this chrono system they had where you had to put your hours in and it was BS and everybody knew it was BS, but you still had to do it. Mm. and to get paid you had to do it mm. and so i had to basically make up some hours or something i didn't keep track of my hours yeah so basically it was what it was is to help the institution not get nailed by these pre-existing conditions of a contract because ordinarily as an adjunct you sign a contract right so that mm-hmm. you're presented with a contract it's stipulated how much you're going to make sometimes they're called agreements it's, it's very confusing. It's very confusing to try to understand this because sometimes it says, here's a contract for non-contract faculty work. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that actually is what the Pepperdine contract says. And it's like, um, so wait, if it's non-contract, then why is there a contract here? I don't understand. Um, it, it's so wacky. Some of the laws, it doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah. A labor laws, I'm saying. And um, so, um, but that, that it'll be, it'll stipulate some of the, I'm, I think I'm having an issue with my, oh, it's yeah, my it's internet a, connection. Yeah. Yeah. I've okay. noticed a little bit dropping there from, from internet. Okay. All right. Hmm. Well, I have my, there, the cord in this new microphone is such that I have to hold it like this for the static to go away. I think I it's see. just the cord. Anyway, so I didn't know if it was the cord. But uh, mm-hmm. so ordinarily you sign a contract and the conditions are there in the contract. So you think, okay, well, this is just a contract, right? You're, you're agreeing. Both parties are agreeing. I'm, you know, the institution is saying, I want, ex- I want this much labor from you. Here's much, how much I'm going to pay you. Um, mm-hmm. And, and then that's it. And you both skip off into the distance and it ends this, it begins this time and ends this time. But the labor law in California, I don't know what it is in other states, but the labor law in California would say, no, no, there's all sorts of other things that aren't stipulated in the contract that are actually a part of the contract mm-hmm. because it's a part of the labor law. And that stuff is some, to some extent fluid, mm. depending on the political climate and what's happening in legislature or what yeah. latest decision happened you know in court so it's uh it's a little confusing for the adjunct um mm-hmm. what yeah. exactly um why is it that i can only get two classes let's say i need more more than two classes why can't i have more than two classes mm-hmm. um let's say You'd okay. So on one way of looking at it, um, you're getting 18 grand in 2008 for the year for the academic the year. year. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I'd much rather have, what do we say that was? It was 4,500. Okay. I'd much rather have 45,000 than 18,000. Now that means I have to work twice as hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I also get twice the money and I need the money and I'm willing to stay up later and get up earlier and work on Saturdays and stuff like that. Well, the labor law won't let you do that. And the way they have tenure on campus is 
it, it's just really interesting how antiquated <laughs> this system is because they the the campuses act as if from heaven moses gave the possibilities you know like you have visiting professor you have you have clinical professor you know it, it, it's like well why can't you change that up i mean why do you why is it just that why can't you have something like um i don't want to get off into tenure i'm interested to hear what you have to think about yeah. what you say about tenure yeah um whether it's a good thing how do you get it all that but mm -hmm. but why can't you have just a professor you know like just teach the students i mean why is that why can't you have that yeah it's very, it's interesting. It, it's, it's odd how uh, an industry dominated by Democrats is so conservative. I know, I know, I know, I know. So what's, uh, you obviously have theories about this. So yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know so, that you wanted to get in there like 5 million places and I appreciate you just letting me. Quite all right. You're, you're the host. You're the host. I'm going to follow your lead. Uh, so bottom line. So tenure, you know, and I, I I'm sure a lot of people don't understand what tenure is. Um, just it was something that, uh, as I understand it, was created or at least uh, standardized under the uh, the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors, which is a, it's a national organization that's been around at least since the 1940s. But they created a statement of principles on academic freedom and tenure in 1940. And one of the major purposes uh, of this and I'm actually reading from something here is, uh, is uh, to ensure the, the freedom of teaching and research and extramural activities. Essentially, it, tenure helps to guarantee a certain level of academic freedom for professors, because if you come up with some type of, let's say, very novel idea like Einstein's theory of special relativity and you, all of your colleagues uh, disbelieve in that or they maybe are a little jealous and they're going to want to get you fired. So <laughs> tenure ensures that that the university cannot fire you without cause, without due cause or due process. So let's say you have an affair with a student or you, or you, you shoot a man in, re, in, in Memphis just to watch him die, to quote the Johnny Cash song. All right, yeah, they'll, they'll fire you for that on your way to jail, but they're not going to fire you simply for having um, unconventional ideas about special relativity. You have tenure to ensure your academic freedom. And in that respect, I think, that tenure is a good thing. Tenure was fairly well established in the United States across the board up until the 1970s. So here's the, here are the statistics that I wanna make sure that your viewers know. And this is well documented. This is all over the literature. I could even give you later on, I can give you some, some of the documents to share with your, your viewers. Um, but as of about 1969 and 1970, the best, um, uh, data that we have says that approximately 75 to 80 percent of all faculty in higher education in the United States were on the tenure line, meaning that they either had tenure track jobs and they were going to get and they were going to get tenure. They were pre-tenure. What year was that were, again? What what years were that? I should have written the, that down. The different, yeah, the different um, studies that I'm looking at begin either in 1969 or 1970, but it's always right about 1970 is the is the, the cutoff point when it was still good, when professors were treated well 
and tenure was the norm. It was the standard that most, yes. so, so 75% of all higher ed faculty in the United States were on the tenure line, meaning either pre-tenure or tenured. All right. And the remaining, the 25% were uh, what we would call uh, either non-tenure track or uh, contingent is another term that we've used, meaning that they are either part-timers or they were full-time non-tenure track where they're just here for this year. And then next year, they'll move to a different university they're visiting. So the remaining 25% is contingent faculty in 1969, 1970. Then it started to change. And year by year, the tenure system started eroding in US universities to the point where the best figures that we had somewhere in 2008, 2011, the, 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 all the studies differ, but somewhere about in the 2010s, it has flip-flopped where 75% of all higher education faculty are off the tenure line. They are non-tenure track professors or contingent professors, and only 25% of them are tenure line, meaning pre-tenure or tenured. Uh, so in that 75% that category of contingent faculty, a significant amount of that 75% are part-timers. I would say the best estimates are about 50% of higher ed faculty at this point are part-timers and the remaining 25% comprising that 75% are non-tenure track full-time like visiting profs or other kinds of full-time instructors that have one-year contracts and likely will be out on their butts the next year. So it's short-term. Um, so, so yes, the tenure system has eroded over the last 40 to 50 years from 1970 to 2010 or in the 2010s. And now, obviously, we're in 2022, but it has not gotten better. It has stayed the same or gotten worse. Um, so the tenure system is broken. I personally believe that the tenure system was a good thing. It is a good thing, hypothetically, in that it ensures a certain level of academic freedom for professors. Um, I don't believe that it, that it uh, keeps deadbeat professors in their jobs and, allow, and and keeps them from being fired. I think that's really up to the individual department. But I mean, I'm sure there are always cases where professors are going to abuse the system, but it's not something that, that institutes a level of, of uh, mediocrity. I don't believe that. Um, but I do believe that it ensures that, that professors also have a living wage and that we have some level of security being at one university and we don't have to spend all of our time driving to a second, a third, a fourth university to work part-time at three, four, five places, and that we're not, we don't have the time to contribute to research and publication the way that a professor is supposed to do when they're outside of class. So to me, that is one of the drawbacks of the fact that the tenure system has become broken over the last 40 to 50 years. Some professors these days, they'll say, oh, the tenure system, it's a it's a thing of the past. We have to just move on and figure out how to fix these problems without tenure because it'll never come back. I disagree. I think that we can, if we work hard enough, we can fix the tenure system. We can bring it back or at least do some type of, some type of um, a correction of this. Uh, I understand we were talking a few minutes ago about the idea of all of these labor laws that are quick fixes to the big problem of of having all these adjuncts floating around in higher education um, and what are some of the, the, the unforeseen negative consequences of these quick fix legislations. Yeah, I, I, I know that they are well-intentioned. 
these various labor laws, but I, but they're just not helping. They're, they're making things worse or they're keeping them the same. And in my opinion, there are a couple of ways we fix this. And one is by having uh, support from all higher ed faculty, tenured or, or non-tenured, to try to restore the tenure model, to try to ensure that we don't uh, excessively use adjunct professors, because that's what's going on, is that the universities are getting away with, with hiring two, three, and four adjunct professors to do the job of one full-time professor, tenured or not. And uh, they're saving yeah. money. They're saving money on benefits. They're saving money on all sorts of things. And they're keeping those adjunct professors disempowered so that they are not able to speak up in the governance, the shared governance of the university. That's one of the things that the university system is based on, the idea of shared governance, that everybody in every class of, uh, of, of faculty, whether they're part-timers, full-timers, or whatever, that we have a responsibility to participate in the governance of the university. We all have a stake in ensuring that the students get a good education, good value for their money, that we are making sure that that professors are doing their job well, um, and that the university stays afloat and can make enough money to, to pay its bills and keep the lights on. So uh, this is part of the accreditation process also is ensuring that all classes of faculty have some level of shared governance in the university. But that's something that's impossible to carry out if you have yeah. 50 or 75% of your faculty are part-timers yes. who are not going to meetings. They can't, they can't spare the time to come to meetings because they're working at another school. Yes. So, yeah. So we well, need to fix that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'd say, and, and forgive me. So, so there's two ways we can do that either through a massive class action lawsuit against the accrediting bodies for letting this happen or by unionizing. And frankly, I think it could be a two-pronged approach. You do both at the same time. You unionize the adjunct faculty nationally, and you file a class action lawsuit against the accrediting bodies for allowing the, what is sometimes called the adjunctification of higher education, where that, that demographic, those numbers flipped from 1970 to 2010. And now most higher ed faculty are part-timers who have no real stake in the university they just they just need to get fed and there's just no chance that they're going to ever get a tenure track job because there are so few of them out there and so many faculty either uh go and they do something else and they leave academia and that means that talented brilliant people are leaving jobs where they could have been very productive and they could have really helped advance their field um or some people are just keeping on teaching at three, four, and five different universities for 20 or 30 years until it wears them out. And some of them do die. So. Yeah. Yeah. I agree that that tenure is a good thing. I think I, I want to hone in on something that some people might be missing about what we mean by tenure. The most specific thing we mean uh, well, I mean, maybe not you, you can let me know if you mean this or not, but is, is the rights of rehire. Mm. In other words, um, that's the, that's the most dramatic difference. If you have a contingent full-timer versus a tenure person is, I mean, yeah, there's, there's some due process things about removal. If there's complaints or something like that that's fine. You can build in the due process stuff on any level, really. But 
but it's the rehire issue because because it's the the thought that i don't know how far i have to plan in advance financially that's the 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 very taxing thing on the on the adjunct and the the tenure doesn't have to worry about that because they're first in line for any courses that the university offers if they have students and um, if the students are willing to come and pay the money, then, of course, if you don't have the students willing to come and, and pay the money, then you have another problem altogether. Mm-hmm. But um, you have and I, and I agree that the tenure issue in terms of due process rights for removal is very important. I would say it's just as important for like judges, for example, a judge. You, you don't want the judge running for real or well, I mean, judges do run for election, but I'm talking about federal judges, federal judges have tenure, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. And, uh, they have a tenure immediately. There's no mm-hmm. process other than getting appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate that's immediate. And there's a good reason for that. I think it's a very good reason. It's actually in the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution. It's, I mean, the reason's not in the Constitution, but the, the provision is. Um, that uh, when, when you hear a case and you have two parties, we have an adversarial legal system, so there's always two parties, right? The, gov- the judge works for the government, right? Mm. So oftentimes the government is a party to the case for separation of powers, you have to ensure the judge is independent of the government side, right? So what happens when the judge is worried about getting his contract renewed and who's going to renew the contract? Well, the government is, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the government is a party in the case. Mm -hmm. So you have to remove the judge from financial pressure, first of all, and then on the other flip side of that is what if the judge feels like his contract isn't going to be renewed by the government, he thinks the government will lose, should lose. And what do you know? The other party is hiring. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, I'll just get a job with them. And I rule with them. So it, it would just corrupt the whole thing. And I think to some extent with grades and stuff, professors are like that. I mean, they're kind yeah. of, they're, they're judging student work. Um, there is a amount of independent judgment that goes into being a good professor. You have to be able to think for yourself. You're not just towing the line of the university, right? The university has views about things, but you're not just a mouthpiece mouthpiece for the university. That's not how it really should be. Or you shouldn't even be a mouthpiece for the department. I don't think. Right. So I think, I'm for what I hear you saying is you're for free speech. Is that fair to say? I'm always for free speech. Absolutely. Okay. So you and I both connect on the first amendment and the second amendment. What do you know? <laughs> we probably will have common ground on the fourth. I'll bet. So, um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I, I think, uh, you are correct also as far as the shared governments thing, governance thing. I, a lot of people don't understand as far as um, 
what it means, what's shared governance. Um, that means that faculty are making decisions about how to run the school to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just yeah. bureaucrats pop, you know, yeah. that don't teach. Faculty have some say, is that what you mean? Yeah. And if I can elaborate on that, yeah, please. That is that is one of the differences in how universities used to be run and how universities are currently run. There's always the idea of shared governance, which is built into the the process of accreditation. All the major U.S. accrediting bodies that accredit schools, and they are, by the way, they are uh, private nonprofit corporations that are endorsed by the government. The government, you probably know this, but your viewers may not. The government does not get involved directly on the level of accreditation. The government has sort of a level of oversight of the accrediting bodies, but the accrediting bodies themselves are private nonprofit corporations, most of which are secular. Many They're people regional. would not know that part. Right. So that's good that you yeah. said that. Yeah. Some of some of these are actually religiously oriented um, accrediting bodies. They're Christian that, that accredit Christian schools like ATS. So. A, 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 oh, yeah, ATS, ABHE, Association for Biblical Higher Education, tracks the Transnational Association of Christian Colleges and Schools, but the majority of them are secular organizations like WASC, the Western Association of Colleges and Schools and Colleges, I think, yeah. each region having its own. Yeah, yeah. So, so these are private nonprofit corporations, but they are endorsed by the Uh, the Department of Education. So the government sort of oversees loosely, but stays out of it. But there's always this expectation from all the accrediting bodies that there will be a certain level of shared governance among all of the stakeholders of a university. And that includes students, because they want to know, what are we going to get taught? Are we going to be get taught? Are we going to be taught biology as well as chemistry and so forth? Is is this degree? There's a lot of decisions that have to be made as far as curriculum goes. What the degree plans look like, yeah. Yeah, professors, students, even the staff to some degree, as well as the administrators. The big difference that has taken place is over the last 50 years with the adjunctification of higher education and fewer and fewer tenure-line professors, that means that more of the responsibility falls on the shoulders of the upper-level executive administrators, the provosts, the chancellors, the executive vice presidents of whatever, the president, him or herself, and so forth, and less of the responsibility falls upon the shoulders of the individual professors in their committee work, because that's part of it is that the, the professors are supposed to contribute do in their committee work to the governance of the school, things that they would be helping the deans to to govern and carry out certain policies. So now that you have fewer and fewer professors who are tenure line, who can devote their time to this shared governance, more and more of the responsibility falls upon the shoulders of the upper level administrators from dean on up, dean, provost, executive provost, associate provost, and so forth. And what we've seen over the last 30, 40 years is what is called administrative bloat. Yeah. So they're hiring more and more administrators That's a huge to cover part. more and more of these categories that need to be handled. Yeah, and they need to be handled. I mean, I'm not saying that these tasks are unimportant. Some of them may be more important than others, but, but that more is being done by upper level administrators who are not teaching. Maybe they used to be teachers at some point in their career, but they're not teaching. They're administrating full time 
and less and less is being and they make a lot of money by the faculty they make more um, money so than the professors make a lot of money now oh yeah yes that's, that's a key thing so to mention they make the a lot professor. more money than the professors yeah mm -hmm. well they do work in the making... summer yeah they, they do work in the summer to be that's fair. right yeah. yeah they do they do some of them are making two three four hundred thousand dollars a year depending upon the school here's where maybe maybe do you mind if i share the screen for a half a minute sure yeah okay let's see if i can find this all right so this was all right let's see if i can i'm gonna move this over here um all right uh, share screen hold on i'm, I'm not i'm oh, having a I'm sorry. Time with my on my end i'm having I, I, there you go oh wait okay. sorry i'm not sure if i did it too I'm, soon i'm uh I can see it. Okay, good. Okay. So this was from the Chronicle of Higher Education. This is this is public knowledge. I didn't steal this from anywhere. <laughs> I didn't make this up. This is public knowledge. This is from 2013. This is from the year that we started our union drive at LMU. Uh, this is the compensation of the upper level administrators. And this is already nine years ago. So this the is when the this is the anecdote that I shared at the beginning where you came into my office over in their philosophy section. You walked yeah. the long 50 feet from your office to my actually it's probably more like 50 yards, but okay. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So this is from 2013. So the salaries have surely gone up at this point. Some of these people are no longer here. They have a different president. David Bertram was the president at the time who was making five hundred and four thousand dollars. Right. And you know what? I am not here to disparage these numbers. I believe that it is important that in order to recruit quality level uh, administrators of large corporations like a university, you have to pay them, yes. But to what degree is appropriate and what is the pay gap that is appropriate? And so, so all these upper level administrators, I, I haven't counted. I think it was about 16 people here. You've got several million can, dollars can you zoom in on that just a little bit is that a possible uh, without see here. is that real okay that's good is that good uh yeah 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 that's, that's so better Dave Burton make, making a half a million dollars at that time the second highest paid employee of the universe of university was the men's basketball coach max good making four hundred thousand dollars that year that's higher than any of the other executive vice presidents, provosts, et cetera. In fact, Joe Heligy, the provost of the school, it doesn't say provost here, it just says senior vice president, but he was the provost at the time, was making $300,000 a year. That's a lot less. That's $100,000 less than the men's basketball coach. So that says a lot about the importance of, um, of, of, of sports, athletics at universities in terms of fundraising. And I'm not, I'm not disparaging this. I'm just saying it's part of the reality but how does this then affect the adjuncts? And if we go down this list and we look at all the senior vice presidents of, of water fountains and that, campus beautification. That's a lot of administrators. That's what I, that's the first thing I notice is just how many there are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And down here at that particular time, this, this was, this, this was, uh, a, a, I guess we'd yeah. say a, a list that we had utilized for. Hold it as a right there. Of, Hold it right there. Yeah. Okay. So the adjunct professor yeah. is the one that is teaching the damn students. Mm -hmm. The students are paying for all this. Yes. 
And now what does this say about the focus of the mission of the university, which is teaching, teaching the student excellent excellence, academic Mm -hmm. excellence, you know, teaching them the material with excellence and also expecting excellence from the, from the student, Mm -hmm. no grade inflation. Right. How do you, how do you stand up to the pressures of grade inflation when you've got all these people breathing down your neck and you make hardly anything and you could easily be just cut out? Yeah. Because your job is only as secure as, uh, as the whim of the chair of your department or the people who do the hiring and, and staffing. And if the chair likes you, and I, I'm grateful that we have a chair of my department who likes me and I like him. I think he's a wonderful human being. But if, he, if that were not he, then anybody could be let go if there is no job security. Eh, they don't like you. We're not hiring you back this year. Lots of women, I notice. Yeah, Lots yeah, of yeah. women. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, um, I won't say anything against that, but yeah, I, no, I guess on some just, level, I'm just noticing, I'm just yeah. noticing, I'm noticing. Yeah. I wonder um, how did, how did this become public? Uh, well, this is, this was actually uh, in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Uh, the oh, okay. Chronicle of Higher gotcha. Education publishes these and, you know, LMU really isn't too different from other schools. Um, most schools have this kind of profile of, of upper level administrators making a good amount of money and that there is this administrative bloat that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years and that the adjuncts by comparison, this is the part that, that we put there for, to, for the usage of our flyer when we were unionizing. So that's the only addition that we've made to this chart. The chart comes originally from the Chronicle of Higher Education. That's why I said it is public knowledge and it's even taken from the school's um, uh, uh, taxation and reporting uh, forms with the the federal government, the the 990 form that the IRS have all nonprofits file every year as part of demonstrating that we're we're not a bunch of crooks. We're actually we're 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 abiding by uh, state and federal law, and we're you know we're doing a good thing. So looks like the uh, highest paid people are all men. Yeah, yeah could be, could be. Um, no, anyway, I'm just I'm not I, you don't don't have don't have to read too much into that. I'm just noticing. Sure. Um, there are I don't lot- I don't uh, I don't make any inferences. I'm just <laughs> for, for for those of you who don't know the difference between an argument and a premise. Yeah. A statement is well, just a statement. It's not a it's not an inference. Yeah. OK, yeah. So, I, will, I will just mention a couple of quick things, if you don't mind, before we go away from this. At the time yeah, that yeah. we were starting to unionize. Um. The, the, the head of human resources at the time, well, I mean, the school took a very anti-union bent, uh, but they were t- talking, they were kind of engaging in the, in the rhetoric of all oh, oh, those big union bosses making those big salaries. You know, you really trust those big union bosses? Well, one of the individuals who was saying that was making about $232,000 to organize under SEIU, Service Employees International Union, Mary K. Henry, with approximately 2 million members under her in her care as part of SEIU, she was making about the same salary. So yeah, that, that, that flies in the face of that argument of, oh, these, these high-paid big union bosses don't trust them. So that's all I'll say so about that. that. The, <laughs> oh, the, the adjunct would be making 
in one year, that's a year, right? For yeah. The adjunct. Yeah. So yeah. that would be one month pay of <laughs> the low, <laughs> the lowest, just about one month. Yeah. It's yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's very helpful. Um, gives a people a sense for now you didn't have the tenure line in the middle on how many those are, but right. those right. are pretty bracing statistics that you have 75% versus 25%. And then that's flipped just in yeah. 40 years. And then you have the administrative bloat. So it's not yeah. like the university is saving all this money. It's going to administrators yeah. and and campus beautification, which is important for attracting high quality students. You want beautiful dorms, you want uh, beautiful athletic facilities and so forth. But that's really where a lot of the money is going these days. And I know a lot of your viewers will probably ask, with the increase in tuition, I mean, it's, it's, it's flying through the roof. Where's all this tuition going? It's not going to instructional salaries. It's not going to the adjuncts. It's going to campus beautification, athletics, and administrative yeah. salaries. That's that's an issue. Be uh, to me, that's an issue because uh, the I I wonder to what extent people have lost the point of college. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, it seems like I, I just feel like I'm sad on a whole other level here because it just seems like you and I have a vision of the college campus that's very different than the reality of the college campus. And I'm coming at it from the perspective of, I don't think the students are expecting much from themselves on the college campus. I just don't, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, I think they want the college experience and so a lot of this has to do with protecting the university from lawsuits because of regulations. These highly specialized bureaucrats yeah. are like centuries right. because it's been easier in our litigious society to complain about anything. And then the university is losing tuition dollars to lawsuits. It's, yeah. and, and then regulations, keeping up on regulations. Um, and I also think that the students like, you know, the men's basketball court. I mean, to what extent the, the college experience, you know, is replacing um, academics and, mm -hmm. and the, the contemplative life, the thought, the, the engagement with ideas that, that this would go on for so long and people like wouldn't even notice <laughs> that the lowest paid people are actually the ones on the front lines yes. teaching the students. That yeah. indicates to me a sickness on the college campuses that is much deeper and much more pervasive than something that a, a union could fix. And I, you probably agree with me. The yes. union issue, you've nailed it as far as governance. Um, it is very difficult to, I, I was invited to try to be involved in governance. I remember thinking, I don't know if I want to stick my neck out, then be, that's another aspect. You're in these meetings and you're talking and it's, if you're not a lackey for the department or for the university or for the strongest personalities in the room, well then, you know, you're going to have to voice a dissent 
And as soon as you do that and your renewal contract is totally contingent on whether they like your tie, yeah. <laughs> let's just face it. It could yeah. be something as simple as that in reality. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, they can't discriminate you. Well, actually they could discriminate it against you uh, in reality. Yeah. Um, if you're a member of a per- so-called protective class, because right. there's no way you could prove it. Right. Yeah. But, Hard. but Hard. it's, that's the, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're actually trying something, Eric, here that is like very noble. I think you and me are yeah. discussing something that is quite complicated and, yeah. and we're not going to get it solved in a short period of time. And I, and I just wanted to confess, I, I have a, um, uh, an 11 o'clock appointment. Um, would you, would you be willing to have me on the show again? So we can continue to talk about some of these issues. This is part one, man. This is I part love one. There's no way we can broach. This is just scratching the surface. And I honestly, I thought if we can just get folks to have an introduction to some of these issues, and I don't know who else to talk to you to about it than you. I mean, you're the man as far as I can tell. I appreciate it. Appreciate and um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on and sharing with us your wealth of knowledge. And we'll uh, we'll have you. I'm going to put you on the schedule as soon as possible. Okay, for part two. That'd so be we, great. I so like people it. don't forget what we talked about. <laughs> I want to talk more about why I chose to sign a union card, and I was why I was asking you to join me in the union. And, and of course, we need to talk about why I had that NRA card in my pocket in my wallet. <laughs> we'll start right there, and uh, we'll we'll talk about how you came from New York to California too as well. And maybe even a little bit of a sharpshooting action. Well, or weightlifting. I know you were a weightlifter. Yeah. But um, yeah, we'll start with the union next time. And okay. this will just be part one. I thank appreciate you. it. Thank you, I'm sir. Honored. And I I'm appreciate honored. you coming, uh, telling me about your time limit. 